for some time and a Jungian analyst. Pittman has currently lives and works in Houston and has been in Houston for many years where he was uh, dean of the, of the Episcopal Cathedral in Houston. He resigned from the active uh, from the active role as clergy member in 1991 in order to make a career switch into becoming a Jungian analyst. He trained at the Jung Institute in Dallas between 1991 and 1996, from where he graduated at that point. He's an active priest in the Episcopal Church, but not rector to a congregation. He works in Houston, he lectures widely, he teaches at the Jung Institute in Houston. He is also a published poet, and his poems have appeared in a number of uh, well-known journals. I've known Pittman since the early 90s, when he was in the midst of his career change. When I was still in New York in the early 90s, I was asked by the Jung Institute in Dallas to come and teach a seminar to the candidates, and at that point, Pittman was a candidate in Dallas. So that's where our, our knowledge of each other began, and our paths have crossed in a number of different ways since then. And I'm personally very pleased that Pittman completed his career change and works as priest, Jungian analyst, teacher, and lecturer. And I'm very pleased and very proud to present to you one of my dear colleagues. And uh, I'm sure you will all enjoy and be stimulated by what he has to say. Pittman. Uh, good evening. I apologize for being a, a little bit late. Uh, it's nice to be with Marga again. She didn't tell you that in addition to being one of my trainers, she was also one of my examiners in my propodortica. <clears throat> uh, she passed me. <laughs> and then when I went into my control phase of training, uh, I sat with her for some hours of supervision. So she really is a mentor for me in many ways. And for her and Leon to be back in Texas and to be providing such creative leadership for this society in this city um, is something that we in the Jungian community are proud and pleased about. <clears throat> There's something about uh, this world view that attracts a certain kind of person and personality and since individuation as we know it is an extremely lonely process, uh, it's nice to be in community and communion with others who take the human vocation with ultimate seriousness. And perhaps finally and ultimately the only moral issue is consciousness. It seems to me that if there's anything that we are to do, it is to become conscious. <clears throat> and the refusal to become conscious may be finally the, the greatest blasphemy. So any effort on my part or yours that we can become more conscious, I think we are helping the cosmos in its evolution. That may sound a little grandiose. but the cosmos is fairly grand. 
I want to talk tonight about the power of darkness, and in order to do so, uh, we'll have to begin to try to make some definitions. Darkness in this worldview Is that me or is that you? Can you hear the, that feedback? Is that? Can you help me with that? Thank you, Leon. At the console tonight, Leon Spiker. To try to transform our consciousness into uh, a new orientation about darkness. Because we are such an egocentric people, and in a way, the word egocentric is redundant because the ego is at the center of consciousness by its very nature, that's its function and purpose. But because most of our language is either ego-created or ego-structured, we tend to think of light as positive and darkness as negative. When in fact, we were conceived in darkness, our earliest gestation and earliest consciousness was in darkness. We spend a significant amount of our time in, in this human vocation uh, between the birth we didn't request and the grave we can't escape. We spend much of this time in darkness. That's called sleep or the unconscious. And so darkness is a place of creativity and gestation. And we tend to associate either negative or pejorative terms about darkness when in fact the dark is the place out of which we've all come. Whether we talk about the Hebrew creation myth, or whether we talk about the fetus in its conception and gestation, or whether we talk about the ego consciousness, all evolves and is created out of darkness. And so to reorient, to begin to think that darkness may be uh, the most creative and in some ways the, the containing place for transformation. Now, we do know something about um, consciousness, and that is that it's very difficult for human beings to do. It's almost as if it's unnatural. I mean, you watch an infant begin to struggle into consciousness, and that infant that has been pre-conscious struggles to become conscious and can only maintain or sustain consciousness for moments at a time before it disintegrates. Now there evidently is a plant consciousness, um, an, an animal consciousness, but there's something about human consciousness that has its own distinctiveness. And it seems as though that our becoming conscious has not only function but true purpose. But it's not an easy thing for us to do. 
Now, even at best, we can only sustain consciousness for 18 hours at a time. And then we must lapse back into the womb of the maternal unconscious in order to be transformed and renewed in order to be able to make another increment of attempt at becoming human. And even within that 18-hour period, there are altered states of consciousness. I, only, I know that empirically, not only in terms of my own body, but being a teacher, preacher, and lecturer throughout uh, my entire adult life, I notice when I'm lecturing, people go into altered states of consciousness. <laughs> it's known clinically as a hypnagogic state. It's known in the pew as sleep. Now, <clears throat> these altered states of consciousness each have their own function and purpose in terms of uh, our own evolution, our own consciousness. And the fact that we're in an altered state of consciousness doesn't mean that it's a bad or a wrong place to be. As a matter of fact, that's some of the best learning uh, comes from that sixth grader who's staring out the window. That that period of when the ego is in idle, many times some of the best learning goes on in those times of wool gathering, dreaming, day dreaming. Maybe ultimately we don't know the difference between night dreams and day dreams. They each have their own mystery and enchantment. Some of the great human events and inventions have come around the daydream. I want to talk about consciousness tonight and talk about it in terms of some of the things that we traditionally in our civilization and culture have seen as dark things may actually have the real power to transform the human being. For instance, the word sin. which comes from the Greek word hamatia, which really means to be off the mark or to miss the mark. So that rather than sin being a pejorative term about the depraved human being, sin is a description of the process of becoming human. In other words, if we presume that there is a mark that we are, and in Jungian analytic terms, the mark would be the self, capital S, that which I was created to be, my self, capital S. Jung thought that the self was the imago dei, the image of God, the essence at the center and circumference of the psyche is the self. It's uh, a symbolic term for one's true essence. So it is the essence of who you are and the totality of who you are. It pre it's pre-existent in the sense that, as I've said in a poem, that the song the bird is to sing is in the egg before the bird is born. So it is with the self that we are struggling to become, and that seems to me to be the human vocation is to become that self. And so sin in this terminology would be not being oneself off the mark. 
And so the word repentance, which has been a uh, poorly translated word, the word repent came from the Greek word metanoia. Now, of all the noias, this is my favorite. Paranoia is not one of my favorite noias. Meta means to change, as in metamorphosis, which means to transform. Metanoia means to change your mind. And so sin is a part of the human psyche that informs us that we are not one with what we're called to be, the human vocation. And so the idea of being off the mark, rather than a description that should shame a human being, it is a description of the process toward individuation. So it's our nature to be sinful and to be not one with what we're called to be or not always on the mark with selfhood. So that begin to think about sin and repentance and to reframe in a way maybe even the entire sense of consciousness about what it means to be human that rather than the labor and pain that was issued in a punitive way in the book of Genesis, that labor and pain are not punishment, but they are process. So that in order to become conscious, it takes a lot of work and a lot of labor, and it's a very painful process. We see it in the infant. That's painful trying to become conscious. So the power in the darkness is that through those mistakes and failures, those missings of the mark, that that's where the power of transformation comes because those are magnificent opportunities for increased consciousness. Now, one of the things that Jung did that I think was one of his most important contributions was to begin to look at crisis or pain or suffering or even illness maybe even accidents, that rather than those being simply causal, that is to say that there is a cause for the effect, that they perhaps are what he called teleological, which means that these events are leading to something in the future. So that when one is presented with an illness or a difficulty or a crisis or a trauma or a tragedy, Perhaps that's an opportunity that will lead to greater wholeness, more consciousness, to transformation. Teleos, from which the word teleology comes, teleos means complete. So that many of the events in our lives that we see as dark, that create for us embarrassment or shame, that maybe those events actually are God or the self or the unconscious urging us toward transformation. Perhaps if any of us was conscious enough, 
we wouldn't have to make mistakes or have failures or be ill or have accidents. But who among us? And as a matter of fact, it's through those experiences that we become conscious. And so the idea of power of darkness is the idea that many of the things in our human vocation that are so laborious and so painful for us are the ways by which we journey toward this mystery symbolized by the word wholeness. Jung said that neurosis is a suffering that has not yet found its meaning. That neurosis is a suffering that has not yet found its meaning. So suffering, for instance, is something that each of us wants to avoid, distract from, for reasons beyond my understanding. It seems as though the essential ingredient for the creation of whatever we mean by soul is experience. And that suffering, evidently, is one of those experiences that is a requirement for making soul. Whatever soul is, it's about depth, and it's about complexity, and it's about substance. And that seems, that depth and substance seems to be created through suffering. And yet, that's another human vocation that we don't seem to have great facility with. Now, let me make a very important distinction. The kind of suffering that one has from metastatic bone cancer is not what we're talking about. That kind of destructive and raw physical suffering that goes on at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston. We're not talking about that kind of suffering. One learns from that kind of suffering all that one's going to learn in about 10 minutes. That ought to be palliated as soon as possible. And thank God for medical science that has created the ability to palliate pain. So I'm not talking about that kind of suffering. I'm talking about the kind of human suffering that is incumbent in the vocation of becoming human. One cannot become human without suffering. And suffering evidently has purpose. That there's power in those dark times and those dark places. The etymology of the word suffering comes from the Latin ferrere, which means to carry. Suff is a pre-existent suffix meaning from below, the same as sub, S-U-B. Etymologically, the word suffer means to carry from below. I love uh, some of the King James translation of the Judeo-Christian scripture, and I particularly love that where Jesus was teaching and he said, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, to our contemporary ear, suffering little children doesn't sound like something one would do. It means pick them up and carry them. Pick them up and carry them up here. Suffer means to carry from beneath. 
Literally, it means to stand under. And that's where we get the word understanding. So suffering leads to understanding. We suffer it. We carry it. We stand under it until we can understand it. So that suffering is the way in which we expand and transform soul. There's power in suffering. And unfortunately, much of the tradition that Marg and I work out of, depth psychology, uh, many of the founders, maybe exclusively the founders of depth psychology, really came out of the tradition, medical tr tradition of neurology. And so, so much of what the human vocation of, is about has been pathologized. That is to say that this is almost equated with sickness. You know, the word neurosis really means inflamed nerve. And that's the term we use as a kind of catch-all for not being one with oneself. It's interesting that neurosis and sin might be synonyms. And who among us is not neurotic? That's the nature of being human. We're off the mark more than we're on it. And our whole life is a commentary on reorienting ourselves to reconnect with the center uh, which generates life called self. So the idea of pathologizing suffering as if there's something wrong. Now, why do we do this to one another? If one comes in with some altered affect, bad mood, or, or if one is in the throes of a very powerful complex, why do we say what's wrong? Why do we ask that of one another? What's wrong with you? Not anything wrong. It's the process that the psyche uses uh, to urge me toward greater consciousness. Now, who among us has that kind of savoir-faire? What's wrong with you? Well, I'm simply individuating. Most of us who are clinicians have a real love-hate relationship with the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, 4th edition. Because so many of those axes and those categories really are descriptions of normal human situation. And yet it's been pathologized, that is to say it's been made sick. Of course there are personality disorders. There are affective disorders. I thank God for um, a lot of psychopharmacology that has been redemptive for human beings. But so much of what the human experience is about is not necessarily sickness, it's just process. I'm convinced that process is an archetype. 
And that is that it's a predisposed pattern of human behavior. That we're in process and suffering and being in and out of complexes and struggling to become conscious and figuring out how to relate to another human being, trying to find what we do between uh, this birth and grave and this in-between time, known as the meantime, that it's a process. And we tend to overemphasize the inalienable right that we have to pursue happiness. Happiness is uh, not the goal of life. Experience is the goal of life, and we are to experience life. And what many of us do much of the time is find ways to avoid the experience of life. What Jung called the provisional life. Because labor and pain are a part of the process. They're not punishment. It's not a punitive thing. It's just the way that the system works. Now, if there's anything that I say tonight that is of any profundity, listen carefully. This will be it. Not everything that feels good is good. Not everything that feels bad is bad. Now, having sort of set that backdrop, let me talk for a minute about why we get in the situation we're in about denying the power of darkness and difficulty. Human development is really a commentary on the development of ego structure. Now, ego is a very interesting organ of the human psyche. It has function. The ego evolves into the center of consciousness and has at least three functions. The first function of an ego is to orient the psyche into time and space. Now, this is a very platonic view. And that is that our souls were in eternity and were plucked out of eternity into time and space in order to have the human experience. And in almost that Buddhist sense, we, among all the souls in, in eternity, are among the luckiest because we were called into the human experience. And this is our vocation, is to live a time and space existence. So ego, as an organ, functions as the organ of time and space. It was created for it and it will end when time and space does. This is very bad news for the ego. So the ego has as its function orienting the psyche in time and space. The second function is that it is a differentiating organ. That is, it, that's the part of consciousness that's able to differentiate among things and therefore connect things. A third function of the ego, and this is the one that creates the most difficulty for us, is that the ego is 
the way by which one has identity. One is identified consciously through the ego. And further, that's a major self-conscious organ. Now, we talked about human consciousness earlier. I mean, if there's a plant consciousness and, a, and an animal consciousness, there is a human consciousness. And one of the things that seems to separate us fairly dramatically is this idea of self-consciousness. We see it in the creation story about, how did you know you were naked? The word, uh, there's a whole theory that says the word Adam, Adam, really uh, has been translated all men or all human, but really it comes from the root of uh, the word for clay, which is red, and so it's, it was the idea that this, this organism was embarrassed. That's self-consciousness. Now, when I've raised this issue with dog lovers, they want to remind me that their dogs are self-conscious and that their dogs experience shame and so forth. And I'm, I'm willing to, shall we say, throw you a bone on that. But, but I do believe that uh, humans are further evolved in terms of our self-consciousness and particularly our own embarrassment about being human. So if we just roughly in an elementary way say that those are three or four functions of ego and hold that to the side for a moment against this backdrop that we've tried to develop and then talk about the way that the ego develops for just a moment. Now this is called essentially developmental psychology. That the ego develops in increments. It's slow in developing. Joseph Campbell says about ego development, we're born 14 years too early. It takes that long, at least, to develop some sense of ego structure. I've always been fascinated and pushed a little hard to get this concept in, but been fascinated with how the ego develops in increments of seven. That is, childhood is zero to seven, pre-adolescence is seven to 14, Adolescence is 14 to 21. Middle age used to be 35. Well, we're living so much longer, some of our categories have lessened. Uh, the average life expectancy in the year 1900 in this country was 47 years of age. I'm told now one in every three girls born today will live to be 100. So 35 is, you know, not quite middle age anymore, but it is a nice increment of seven, isn't it? Yeah. So the poets chose seven as the period for the creation. So we know psychologically that seven tends to be a period of completion, like the seven-year itch in a marriage. Seven's big in terms of elements and planets and those kinds of things. So the ego develops slowly. Now the ego, in terms of its development, develops around three issues. Stimulation, gratification, and approval. Stimulation is simply that 
external demand that the ego develop. So that we, by our own nature, as parents or parental figures or people who are around a child, we can't leave them alone. It's in our nature to stimulate them. And in so doing, it awakens them, brings them into consciousness. And so their ego begins to develop in a very sort of thin eggshell way. So stimulation is very important. And we know that if an infant is born and not stimulated, it will not prosper. But stimulation is very important to ego development. Gratification is the sense of meeting the needs of the ego. So that a child coming into consciousness becomes conscious of a, of a kind of wrinkle of pain in its stomach. And if that pain is gratified by food, then the ego begins to develop around a sense that this environment is a safe one for me to grow in. And so in the School of Object Relations, we see that this self and other development is very important and that the child sees its mother or surrogate mother as an object and really we're talking about the infant mother as a dyad so that very important as to the gratification that goes on for the infant in the earliest development that the child must be gratified now that's the good news. The bad news is we never seem to outgrow this need for gratification. One of the earliest learnings that we have that we have to relearn is that the anecdote for pain is pleasure. We have to relearn that because the first learning we got was that when I hurt, I get pleasure. And so the rest of our lives, we think that we have to pleasure our pain. That's the backdrop behind me that says, stay away from dark things. But what we learn eventually is that that pain may be needed to be entered into rather than avoided. And so, so many of our patterns of behavior are, are around distracting from pain rather than entering into it. And we, we not only had that primitive need to be gratified, we either were or we weren't, and that creates two different kinds of problems. Object relations describes three kinds of mothers that I think are important for us to think about in terms of ego development. The, the first is the present mother who is absent. The second is the absent mother who is present. And the third is the present mother who is present. Now if the present mother is fully present, then she is present when she's absent. That is that the child begins to see that if I was gratified and the mother was there, as I disintegrated, she deintegrated with me and gratified me and soothed me and gave me a sense of safety and security about my environment that even when she's not there, I'm able to do that for myself because she's present. I have integrated her as it were. 
Now, for many of us, the worst mother was the present mother who was absent. She was physically there, but unable, because of her own narcissism, her own needs, to disintegrate or deintegrate with us, be there for us, be present, be empathic. That's Alice Miller's well-known book, The Drama of the Gifted Child, where the mother was so narcissistic that she was unable to be empathic with the child. And for those of us who had that kind of mother, our worth was in taking care of her. We learned very early she wasn't going to take care of us, so we had to take care of her. And that's the story of becoming a Jungian analyst. So gratification is very important to ego development. And our life really is a sort of wonderment and analysis of what kind of gratification did we or did we not receive, and how has that affected our own development? So stimulation, gratification, and approval. Approval is that sense that you belong. Now the ego, in a way, the first question the ego asks once it bears the birth canal is who's in charge here, and what are the rules for making it? So we're introducing into our vocabulary another very important word about ego development and ego structure, and I'm doing this part of the lecture in order to establish why it is we're so damn afraid of the darkness. Because the ego prospers around approval, and so the opposite would be disapproval, and so anything that's disapproving, the ego will not tolerate consciously. Authority is a huge issue for the ego, and that is who's in charge here because I must get their approval and approval in order for me to be here and to prosper. Now the infamous negative mother complex in analytical psychology has a script that runs thusly. that my worth or my approval comes from pleasing mother. Now, if she disapproves of me, I am of no worth. So the sort of rubric for the negative mother complex is that my worth is directly in proportion to my ability to please. Now that's the story of becoming an Episcopal priest. There are a plethora of people pleasers in the priesthood. My published poems have less alliteration. So it is with the the, the child that a kind of operative definition of the contents of the ego, ego consciousness, is all of those things about myself that I'm able to tolerate consciousness. 